Now Fiddler. Puts on the step, goes right through, puts on the step again. Oh, go, Freddy! That was magnificent stuff. Well, I shall not bury them. Marshalls gets away, Marshalls gets away. Marshalls still going. Mullins opens up again. Oh, look at him go. He beats O'Davis on the outside. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of The Voluntary Tackle, the only NRL podcast hoping Cameron Smith's new book is stripped from the shelves and binned faster than his 2007 and 2009 premierships. I'm your host, Eamon Brown, and today on the show we'll be discussing all of the big issues in the wonderful world of rugby league. But first, I'm joined in the brand new biggest tiger Astrodome by the only duo to successfully replicate Siegfried and Roy's Bengal Tiger Act with tiny ferrets. It's Xander Risotto and Media Watch Mario. Thank you both for joining us. Good to be here, mate. Uh, but a bit of a mini announcement for our listeners. Yeah, so, g'day, Mario. You've, you're now part of it's a triple act, it's official, it's a three way, as you very uh, delicately put it before the show. Yes, I have been now described as the official third leg, which is obviously a fantastic sex tape we can all get around. And then the best part is we are recording this uh, after 8.30pm, so we get past all the sort of senses and that kind of thing. But welcome aboard, mate. It is fantastic to have you here. Obviously, you've been a bit of a recurring act for the voluntary tackle for some time now. You've passed the really elongated interview process, and uh, you've come through a flying, flying colours, because it turns out, Xander, and you'd know this well enough, um, he came up with as many dick jokes as we would normally come up with a show, and that's all he needed to do to pass. The hazing could have been a little lighter on me, but, you know, I got through. Well, bukkakis are sort of part and parcel of everyday life now, Mario. Don't worry about it so much. Now, before we become a spiteful dictator and change our surname to Anastasia Palaszczuk, just a reminder, you can follow the show on most forms of social media via the handle at Voluntary Tackle. You can also follow Xander Rosado on the handle at Xander underscore TVT and Media Watch Mario on the handle at Mario underscore Siegs. Before we do anything else, you sent me a link today and I think it's quite interesting. Can you tell the listeners about the NRL's new polo shirts? They look like a flesh-eating disease, really. I just don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's it, pretty awful. It's sort of like what you'd imagine Colin Firth would wear in Bridget Jones's diary if he was a diehard South fan. Yeah, but he would actually wear that sweat, the, the sweater in real life. Like, it would be a real sweater. I mean, I, I, I just I can't wrap my head around a sweater printed onto a shirt. Well, Murray, you'd know this. Around, I think particularly in the UK, this is popular. It's the idea of having... The worst possible Christmas jumper ever. That's sort of a an ironic thing to do at the festive time for some reason. Because I guess in Britain, you, you're so bored shitless, you just do anything like that just to get through the day and not kill yourself. But it's it's a rare thing to do in Australia because we're not used to that tradition. A and B, I actually don't think they're necessarily trying to be ironically bad. I think they were actually trying to be good, but they ended up being shit. It sounds to me like the um, visual representation of Nathan Cleary's Game Three performance. So just a turd jacket then. Fantastic. But as much as it pains me as a New South Welshman, lads, uh, we need to chat about the recently completed State of Origin series. It was the grudge match that ended up deciding it in a Game 3 cliffhanger up in the fast food capital of the world in Brisbane, with Queensland emerging victorious 20 points to 14 in a game that saw Nathan Cleary lose his head, Tedesco lose his brain function, and Jack Whiten forget he was playing. Was it a mistake for so many people to label this Queensland team the worst in history? Um, I'll, I'll kick off. Uh, 
it was always stupid. We said it was stupid early on. Um, I, I mean, I didn't see too many. I mean, I know you, you mentioned Gal said it and a few others, but I don't. I only saw Bulldog Richie uh, and a couple of other News Corp hacks say it. And, and as I said to you, the whole thing, um, you know, had the air of a bit of theatre. Like, a, and, and specifically, I, I use the term kayfabe. Uh, it had a real kayfabe feel to it. I don't know if you're familiar with that term at all, Mario. Nope. So kayfabe is a is a reference to the um, the suspension of disbelief belief that um, uh, professional wrestling employees where they all stay in character all the time mm. and it's called you know you're never meant to break kayfabe but they all know, you know they're all in on the joke mm. and it felt to me like this was this was kind of just part of the performance like nobody in their right mind could look at this side and say it was the worst in history it was stacked with grand final winners and grand finalists is that what Jai Arrow's problem was he thought he was kayfabing and that's why he was the undertaker trying to actually kill Tedesco <laughs> yeah something like that I think this is my problem and, and, and it's obviously an issue with the New South Wales media in particular is they want to build a narrative and that's fine but for some reason New South Wales media felt that us winning two series in a row was enough for us to claim some kind of quasi-dominance when obviously it's it's like they'd neglected to remember the previous 10 years, Mario. Yeah, fucking stupid, wasn't it? Sorry, go, Mario. No, no, you're spot on, man. It's absolutely stupid. But at the same time, all it really is is the media playing things up for clicks. It's the same thing they always do. Can I just put you aside on one question because I don't think it was on our run sheet. Um, Gus Gould calling calling for a penalty try for the non-penalty try. Now, am I the only person who thought that Gus was tongue-in-cheek when he said that? I swear he had a huge smile on his face when he was saying that. He didn't think it was a penalty try. And I, my wife was asking me about it at the time. And I just said, no, he's only joking. There's no way in hell that was a penalty try. And yet the in the aftermath, it was just filled with New South Welshmen fans saying oh my god it should have been a penalty try and i was like are people actually being serious did they think gus was serious and he's the fastest man in the world mario the fastest man in the world the fastest man in the world fastest man in the world so I didn't, did anyone else notice the amount of times he said fastest man in the world during the broadcast so wait mario just to be clear here are you asking us to go inside the mind of gus gould because that's a dangerous thing to do mate yeah, I think a lot of what Phil Gould does is tongue-in-cheek. I mean, he's he's a little bit serious, but always a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's the same way he's dropped the plurals of all the mascots this year. It's just to be just a little bit of a dickhead. That's what he likes to do. And that's why he keeps repeating things, by the way, on the comment in the commentary, because he knows it pisses people off. See, see I reckon on, on, the, um, on the, the mascots thing, I think he just started doing that to save space for his tweets, and then people were commenting on it, and he thought he'd have fun with it. Like, he just ran with it. You said something interesting before, Mario. You said, look, it's just the media narrative, and it doesn't really matter that much. But, of course, you know, we did hear Daly Cherry Evans after the game make a wry comment about... You know, this was a great victory for the worst Queensland team of all time. Uh, there were Bronx cheers from the crowd. They're clearly reading the media, mate, if nothing else. And surely this could only act as a motivation for the Maroons going into a series where they they, all, they already like going into the contest with a chip on their shoulder and their underdogs. This would only have played into that, surely. Look, I saw people talking <laughs> comments that Gal made in the lead up along those similar lines and someone saying oh stupid gal shut up you're just making it more likely they're going to win come on it's absolute garbage no player walks out onto the field in the biggest night of their lives thinking oh 
well, we're going to win now because Gal said this or Gus said that. They're thinking about what am I going to do? How am I going to play? What are the strategies we've, we've talked about? They're not thinking about that shit. It's bullshit. No, I, I, I vehemently disagree. There have been like countless cases across a number of sports where um, media reports and, 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 and uh, disrespect dished out to teams has been used emphatically to motivate sides. Um, and can I say this? You can bet your bottom dollar Wayne Bennett was mentioning it to players mm. when he wandered around the room and did his little one-on-ones. You know, there is it, the thing about Origin that I think is quite interesting about it as a contest, and it stands to one side with regular games. It is just so starkly psychological, isn't it? It's mm. it's an exhibition match. You know, it doesn't doesn't count for winning a an NRL competition or a career as so much, but it is just a contest built on this kind of weird. Uh, driven passion between two states, I actually think that kind of rhetoric might be something that you could leverage more in state of origin, say, than a regular club match. Hundred uh, percent. They, it's, it's all built on motivation. State of origin is the only all stars concept that's actually embraced by the fans and the players. So somehow they've worked miracles because no other sport in the world has ever really managed to achieve that, and that's fantastic. So whatever works in driving passion, whatever drive works in driving clicks and whatever works in driving viewing then wonderful i personally don't believe that any player is actually thinking of that when they're on the field they're not when they're exhausted they're not thinking i'm gonna show that gus gould i just think it's full of shit but it's things that they can think of after the game to say oh that was great motivation because it's a line that they're fed it's a media line that they're told to say just like the rest of their media training objectively do you guys agree with that that this was the weakest side that they've ever no, fielded. Because remotely. I have to say, when I look at that front row, I see that as superior, and I certainly see their their spine and halves as superior as well. And I felt like our advantage was in the outside backs. So for me, it was actually fairly evenly weighted. You compare that to 1995, and you know the 95 Queensland team that won were a joke. You know they had no right beating a, a standard NRL team. Just about there was some. It was reserve graders in there, genuine reserve graders. There was apart from Branko Lee, you can argue he's probably a reserve grade player. But that being said, he just won a grand final. The guy's in form. He's in. You know he's in the he's in the zone and all that sort of stuff. There was the Lee brothers is a bit of a, a running gag. The fact that that happened and they actually played is amazing. But. The point is their spine was so good. Their forwards were, were good and on the night so much better than ours. A lot of that's down to our atrocious coach, but I guess we'll get to that later. I actually didn't know, you know, until about a week before that game that Brenko and Edric were, were cousins. I had no idea. Yeah, neither. Yeah, a bit of an interesting family connection out there. But that, that's where Queensland were at their weakest. Let's mm. be realistic, is guys like Sammy and the two Lees who, you know, they're not consistent club players. Um, so I thought that's where we could have the edge. But as it turns out, um, you know, our centres were pretty shite, so it didn't really matter too well, much. They didn't play like centres. But no, I think, I think you're, you're 100% right, and we said this before. I mean, they had the, the test halves. You know, Munster and Cherry Evans were, were the test halves last year. Mm. Um, you know, the only, the only position there was a bit of, you know, weakness was, was fullback, really, uh, of the critical positions. And they had AJ Brimson to start with, and th- that was his best every year, and he was pretty good. And then, you know, like... They they put Valentine Holmes there, uh, what in game two, and then corrected the mistake and put him on the wing in game three. And on, on paper, that was that was a very good side, let alone being you know uh, one of the worst in Queensland history. 
I thought uh, young Allen actually had a bit of a shocker uh, in game three. Didn't seem to matter because they went on to win anyway. But, you know, I feel like an old New South Wales team would have targeted him. You know, mm. I mean, he made a couple of really early ev- errors. He was clearly nervous. And yet we didn't really funnel any additional traffic down there. Bit of frustration there that we probably have halves. Like Nathan Cleary, who had a mixed bag game, is probably the best way of putting it. Feel I feel like he hasn't got that sort of read yet where he's able yeah. to spot weaknesses and relentlessly go at it, for example, like an Andrew Johns would have or um, you know, even a Maloney. Yeah, he, he's clearly a player that can play to a plan quite well but doesn't know how to take control of a game and, and, and make those sort of line calls when things aren't going you know, to plan effectively. Mm. Like, so in game two, you know, they had a very clear plan and he executed it perfectly because they were never really challenged. Game three, it all went to shit. He didn't have the ability to adapt. Yeah. What about uh, Wayne Bennett and Mal Meninga Mario? Do you think that they actually added something to that team? Were they a part of this or was it more just media narrative stuff? Oh, look, I, I don't think, I doubt um, Mal Meninga added anything at all apart from just a massive ego, whereas Wayne to me, is certainly will have been the difference. Can I just... Um, You're talking about the bloke that lost four tests in a row for Great Britain? What needs to be discussed, in my opinion, is that Canberra players should never be picked for New South Wales again. They only play well for Queensland, not for New South Wales. Jack White and sucks. Send him to the sea. When, when, but to me, the big issue I have is when an, an absolute scrub like Josh Papali, whose one, one and only thing that makes him good is running at little guys... He can run at Damien Cook all day and score tries over him all day. How come our big guys can't get in the way and stop him, which is all they have to do? Because he never runs over big guys. He's just this hair-pulling fraud. And yet, here, there he is being allowed to run over Damien Cook over and over and over again. It's just Canberra players are just bothering me. And we can't, as New South Wales, we can't defend against Canberra players, but we can't use them wisely. We may as well just go pick Josh Hodgson, who's only going to be the third best halfback at Canberra this year, because Sam Williams is clearly better. But anyway, um, I just I just don't get it. Jack Whiten was atrocious in all three games, and all I've seen is media talking him up. And Gutho was less bad, but still not great. Well, I'm, I'm I definitely agree with you about Jack Whiten. I thought he was poor in all three games, which was really disappointing. Obviously, he's. He's a Dallium Player of the Year this year. Uh, he's he's form. I know in a different position. He was playing at five eighth, but you know we played him in the centres last year at State of Origin level, and I thought he was superb. And for whatever reason, he was just a ghost mm. in those three games. So that was something that I wasn't betting on, to be honest. I, I'm line with Mario. I think by game three, I was borderline considering dropping him, just because yeah, how yeah. poor he'd been in the first two games, but it just seemed absurd. You're like, wait, am I considering dropping the guy that was just deemed the best player in the competition over the 20 rounds only a couple of weeks earlier? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, you, you you couldn't make changes to the side as well after game two, I didn't think, just given how dominant they were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you had to reward incumbents and you don't want to tinker with, like three weeks straight of footy you don't want to be stuffing around with what combinations you do have yeah so they were in a bit of a bind i think um it's 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 a hindsight is 2020 you're right he was the dalian player of the year he had a blinder at the back end of the season at 58 um you know it worked to put him at center there last year um but yeah i mean you uh yeah you had you have to uh they probably need to reassess whether or not they should be picking 
so many players out of position next time because you had two centres who were who are not regular centres for New South Wales. But you know, it has worked previously. My my issue is that a couple of years ago, Taumalolo was the player of the year. So should um, Tonga have selected him at fullback just because they didn't have a good fullback or 5'8", because they didn't have a good 5'8". I don't give the slightest crap who wins a Dally M because it's a ridiculous system in the first place. But he, he was the best 5'8", allegedly, in the competition. Pick him at 5'8", or don't pick him. He's not a centre, period. But Mario, how do you explain then previous State of Origin series where picking players out of position has worked a treat? Tom Travojevic from your team comes yeah. to comes to mind, who played freakishly well in the centres, um, and we've done that. You know, New South Wales is no stranger to that. You know, they've they've played guys out of position, you know, a fair bit over the years. Uh, I can think of it working more often than not. I, I I always wonder is is that the true symptom that it's just a matter of playing guys out of position or was it more that Jack Whiten was terrible? Has it worked more often than the last 15 years when we've been getting dominated by Queensland? I'm not really worried about the past. It's a different game in 2005 from what it is now. Over the last 15 years when we've been getting dominated overall, it has not worked because we've been losing. We need to pick the best players in the best positions. If you've got someone like Tommy Turbo who has proven at club level and now at origin level that he can do it at multiple positions fine maybe he's the exception but I, i'm you know at what point are we saying oh gutho's played great this year let's stick him in at number nine but to count to counter that mario look at that queensland team they had like darius boyd as a fullback playing on the wing they had greg mm. sinner uh, greg inglis who's a fullback playing in the centers they just picked their best players and then they chucked them in and they played well wherever they could i actually don't really buy the argument and i've got to say this if ryan pappenhausen was fit are you saying you wouldn't play Pappenhausen because Tedesco's there? To me, he's one of the best players in the competition. You've got to get him in somewhere. Pappenhausen should have been 14. Yes, but Pappenhausen being in fullback have always been interchangeable. And, you know, fullback and 5'8", the fullback and centre, not necessarily. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. Pappenhausen would kill it on the wing. There's no question about that. But, um, to, like, there's just – we had really good centres there to play centre – and they didn't get like, didn't get on the field. We, it, it just absolutely bothered me that we're putting in two guys that have never really succeeded at centre. Jack White had been okay last year, but he still hadn't been, he still hadn't killed it at centre. He'd just been okay. Gutho has been a decent <laughs> winger and a good fullback. He's never been a great winger and he's never been a great centre. That was a terrible selection. Gutho should be fullback, fourteen or not at all. That's it. Well, where would you bring him on if he's fourteen? As a backup, he can play. He's de- he's been good at five eight. He's been good at fullback. He can fill in on the wing as needed. So as a fourteen, that's okay. It's not who I would pick. I wouldn't pick Gutho in the seventeen unless we needed a fullback. Yeah, because it's the same issue mm. to me. If you pick someone in fourteen who doesn't normally play a utility fourteen role, aren't you just committing the same sin? Yes, to a large degree, and that's been proven in the past with Jamie Bure and Dylan Walker. I'm just going to start naming them. <laughs> I love the, the first up mention of Bure. That's amazing. Look, I've got a question for you, Xander. Um, Mario mentioned before, he's clearly not a fan of Mount Meninga. I've got something. We, we talked to Dave Shillington mm. um, only a couple of episodes ago, and we asked him specifically about Mount Meninga. He's obviously played for the Maroons. And I said, well, what does he bring in terms of a value for the coach? And, I, and he said something interesting. He said, he didn't give you a lot in terms of tactics, which is probably something that we can all <laughs> sort of see that, that that might be the case. But what he did say is that Mao Meninga explained to him and the rest of the team, especially the forwards, that it was 
incumbent upon them to break their bodies for Queensland. I think that might have been the mm. phrase he used. Is that something that might be undervalued in terms of what Mao might have brought to this team? Because it certainly looked as though this Maroons team was hungrier than ours. I actually think that, you know, in terms of the two, I've always thought Bennett is the biggest fraud in the game. Um, that's just me. You know, failure at the international coaching level, just a disaster for English rugby league. Send them back 20 years, in my view. Anyway, um, moving on, I think that uh, when you look at uh, the uh, uh, the record, you did, he has, he has at the representative level, he's proven to be one of the, the, the best motivators of, of any coach going around. I think, you know, people talk about origin all being around uh, uh, building bonds and, and, and getting people fired up. And he's done that, you know, uh, better than anybody. And the same thing at the, the test level, to be honest. Like, I mean, he was test coach in that, um, uh, that last uh, Rugby League World Cup. Went head-to-hand against, you know, the great sham um, in, Bennett, in that in World Cup final. And England just never looked like they were getting remotely close to scoring. Is that, I mean, this is the same team that lost to Tonga, though. Well, this is the team that subsequently lost to Tonga, but did make two World Cup uh, yeah. finals. Yeah. He's very good now, though, I've noticed, about coaching really, really good teams. Have you noticed that? And the only time he ever didn't do it uh, was that he, when he first came into club coaching, where he coached a fairly mediocre Canberra Raiders team, uh, who resoundingly got their ass handed to them every week. So... Mario, do you, you obviously you think Mal Meninga is a bit of a myth, don't you? I don't think there's any way to really know because of what you just said. He's most he spent so much time coaching such a great team against some re, reasonably mediocre New South Wales teams. Uh, so I think he certainly has still done well to get the eight in a row. I mean, look at look at Freddie, how he's only managed two. So I think we can say Mal's probably a better coach than Freddie, but. It's still early days to say that because we're probably stuck with Freddie for a while yet. Freddie's got them pretty limber with all that yoga though, mate. You've got to admit. Do you guys think the Anastasia Palaszczuk factor was indeed a factor? And by that, for any listeners that don't know, this was the uh, imposition placed on the Blues where they had to fly in on the same day. They weren't allowed to come up early. Uh, the crowds were allowed at full capacity in the stadium. But of course, no one from New South Wales because we couldn't get across the border. Do you guys think this was actually a... A, a significant factor in the result? I think Anastasia should be immediately re-elected forever as Queensland Premier because all her fan, all the Queensland fans should think she's a genius. I think that's what happened uh, actually just a few weeks ago, mate. She was just re-elected with a, with a fairly thumping, thumping majority. It was extremely irritating to, to watch her um, dick all of the teams around who were coming to play uh, Queensland sides basically all year, whilst apparently allowing in, you know, uh, every ice addict in a boxing ring to turn up to North Queensland for events without any uh, due diligence conducted whatsoever. Yeah. But hey, you know, I mean, I'm not calling it a conspiracy. I just just think that she's obviously a scummy human being, you know. I did notice if the price was right, Anna would let you in. Like if you were willing to pay in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, plenty of films got made there mm. during lockdown, I noticed. Uh, Tom Hanks, he seemed to wander the streets of Brisbane with impunity. I know, and he, uh, was, he, he fucking was positive. Had COVID. <laughs> <laughs> he actually had the disease. Could almost end there on that laugh, but uh, something we're also bringing back on the show is the voluntary tackle poll. It's been gone for a while uh, due to my laziness, but I did put this question out, fellas, to the listeners. Just in time for the third league. Go on. Yeah, exactly. What did the latest State of Origin series say about the New South Wales Blues? Now, the options were that they need a new coach, that they were too inexperienced, that they'll win next year, or that there needs to be some player changes. 
Uh, without knowing the results, what did you guys think that the zeitgeist would be uh, suggesting there? I'm going to say people are going to be demanding a new coach. Uh, Xander, you were right. With half the vote, people want Freddie gone. Uh, 33.3% said player changes. Very few people said they were too inexperienced, with 15% roughly saying that they'd win next year, which is good to see those one-eyed blues still there. And you're very good of you, actually, Xander, to vote 33 times. Thanks for doing that. (laughs) Welcome back to the Voluntary Tackle. Now, guys, there were many new rule changes this year. Uh, PVL implemented the six-again rule. Uh, He got rid of the two-ref system. He allowed people to beat the shit out of each other in state of origin again. Uh, he introduced Ray Warren Day, although I enjoyed wearing the, the rouge on my face. I think we can all agree that was a mistake. But among the changes this year was the introduction of a captain's challenge. And today on the show, we're asking which team used it most effectively. Now, it's interesting. Um, NRL.com did a, a bit of a breakdown on you know, the successful challenges and the unsuccessful challenges, as well as which team simply used it more often. Um, Having a look at some of those figures, guys, do you have any opinions on which team you think might have used it best? Well, statistically, it was really the Roosters, obviously, because, um, you know, I think we uh, we had uh, amongst the highest challenges and we didn't actually use it that often. Um, I think technically you might say the Dragons as well, you know, five and two. But that, I think they off, they didn't use it enough, so you probably put a strike on them for that. So the Roosters, let's see, let's see if we can um, agree with you or not. So 41% of their calls were bad, 59% good, and we used it 17 times in total throughout the year. That is one of the highest uh, successful percentages. I noticed most teams had a successful percentage well below 50%. There was mm. only a handful of teams that actually got more than half of their challenges right. Like I guess there's some teams that have actually thought about it before the season and have had a bit of a tactic with it. For example, we know Cameron Smith and Melbourne Storm, their tactic seems to be to use it as late in the game as possible. I feel like, I mean, my bias suggested Manly were really bad at it, but the stats don't quite back that up. I had felt like the Titans were bad at it during the season and Parramatta you just felt like Gutho made a lot of really dumb challenges during the year, but I don't think the stats are necessarily going to tell you the best the best way. I mean, in basketball, a lot of teams will will use that more just to get themselves a timeout, and then as a bit of a throwaway, oh, we might get the challenge right, we might not. It, it does tell you something, though, surely, right, Mario? Like, I mean, that they they're having to resort to it more. Like, I mean, this looking at the the graph, you got the Knights and Broncos have got a 10 and 11 failed challenges between them and only four successful ones. That kind of says that there's a, there's a lot more desperation challenges uh, for those teams than others, perhaps. Uh, it'd be interesting to know when they were done. Like, with the Knights, I wonder if, the, um, if they started using more towards the back end of the year or the start of the year, because the back end of the year, they were really bad. Not, whereas the Broncos were bad all year, so they were just throwing away challenges like they threw away their season. Interestingly, fellas, uh, the the team that used the most challenges was the New Zealand Warriors, and they were also one of the highest percentage of unsuccessful challenges. So it sort of gives the impression that perhaps Roger Tuivasa-Sheck was just throwing fucking challenges out there on a whim every game. Either that or he's just a poor judge. At fullback being the captain, he's probably not the best judge, to be honest. Well, that that leads me to my next question. I mean, this, in a way sort of places more value on the captain, doesn't it? Because yeah. it is a captain's challenge. You know, we, the, the little C next to the the player's name, I guess it means something, but it hasn't necessarily in rugby league 
carried a huge amount of currency. But this is actually something strategic that the captain needs to be on top of. And if you have a dumb shit who's at the front <laughs> for leading the charge of the ship, that's actually going to cost you when it comes to something like the captain's challenge, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen that. We've seen some really frivolous challenges throughout the season. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I think I think some of those bottom sides, you, you know, you probably can see that trend. It's interesting, though, the Warriors and the Sharks both use the same number of challenges. The Sharks got slightly better of it. Um, but, yeah, it kind of tracks, doesn't it, um, for the most part with what you would expect. Well, the Dragons are an interesting one. So they use the challenge the least. They only used it 10 times throughout the year. But they were quite successful. They had the highest percentage, 70%. So 7 from 10 of their challenges were successful. But again, like Mario was alluding to before, is this about actually getting the right result? Or is the tactic, i.e. Cameron Smith, about actually using it then more than just overturning a decision? Is it it about actually stopping momentum in a game at key times? Because I think that Cameron Smith certainly used it that way and a few of the other clubs were keen to use it that way. And the other theory being that, you know, the later in the game, this, it could be the more important the decision. So if they're, they're, you've sort of got it up your sleeve, if the game's on the line, you've always sort of got that there. Personally, I don't subscribe to that, but how do you guys see that as a theory? I just think it should be used for howlers, right? But I, it's not the way it is in any sport. Like Basketball's the same. The NBA has the exact same system, basically, and it's not just used for howlers. So I think it's obviously a coaching strategy that it is, most like most you know best left to the last quarter of the game in theory you know in Mm. the crunch time or whatever um and you know best you can use it in a way to slow the game down so i suspect that some of those challenges late in the game that we've thought why the hell did they do that that was just a dumb challenge you're never getting that right that, that it could well be that there's been a quick message from on high from the coach you know via the the bottle the water carrier just saying challenge that challenge that and it's more to do with getting a message so then they can slow it down. And, you know, I, I think it is a tactic. I think you want to balance, right? I think, I think it is a tactic, but I think it's probably somewhere between in terms of how you want to use it, what you've just said, Mario. I think if you're confident that there has been a howler, like, say, for example, a player having the ball stripped from them when they're on the ground, like in Origin last week, um, you know, you should, you should absolutely get up and challenge that immediately. Um, yeah. But short of that, you, you, you keep it for that final quarter for tactical purposes. See, now, on that final quarter theory, right? Mm. So say you're keeping up your sleeve, you're like, I want to make sure I'm using this or a really important mm. key thing. What if that occasion doesn't arise? So then I've seen that, right? So there are clubs that have used it, and, and it gets five minutes to go, and they've gone, fuck, we better use it. Mm. And they end up using it really frivolously. So I'm sort of with Mario. I actually think you're better off using it for absolute howlers like rather than trying to save it up and going oh well it's still early in the game i know they're fucking wrong um but you know just in case mm. I'll, I'll keep it up my sleeve yeah no i think but that's that's kind of what i what i mean um is yeah you, you should you should first and foremost be using it for the howler but um it, it, you know it for the first three quarters of the game it, it, it must exclusively be for that and i think mm. if as you get into that that final 25 minutes your options for it probably open up a little bit. Yeah. I noticed it's a really interesting exercise in psychology going on as well, which we haven't seen before, which is, you know, there's certain players and certain roles in teams that we don't listen to as much. And I've noticed... The winger and the forward, they keep saying, don't... Well, well, the props, yeah. yeah, Certainly the props. Mario, do you think that 
if a prop says yes, I, I, I definitely didn't uh, didn't lose that ball. It was stripped. As a captain, would you ever listen to them? I think there needs to be a proper punishment system in place, and there's I've good reason for this. So there's a good logic behind this. I think if a player says this is definitely wrong, challenge it, and they're wrong, take a finger. And the reason I think this will work is because Angus Angus Crichton was just about our best player in in the whole series. So if we can make every player in our team lose a finger, they'll all play as well as him and we'll win every time. And then eventually they'll, they'll have the dexterity of a Mitchell Pierce, which will be the ultimate punishment, wouldn't it? To be forever condemned to be a below mediocre player who occasionally gets rep honours. Um, now, I want a, a bit of a thought experiment here. If you guys were actually captains yourself, I want you to give me a, an elevator pitch as to how you think you'd use it. So going into a game, you'd have a bit of a, bit of a game plan. How, what do you think your strategy would be? Well, exactly what we just said. You know, you 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 um you primarily use it as a um uh you know to to correct any obvious massive howlers early on that you know know are wrong and you're confident of. So and say then, it's the first ruck. Yeah. And you go, oh, he's lost that ball. Would you? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Ab- ab- absolutely. Yeah. First ruck. If there's an attacking position, if you if you know he's lost it, stone cold. You're ninety nine percent sure he's going to lose it. Um, he's lost it. Yeah, use it. And then you know. As you get to the to the sort of final quarter of the game, I mean, if, the, if I, I think you you go for those 50-50 ones a little bit more. You say, well, okay, if they're going getting a bit of momentum and we're ahead, we just want to slow them down and sap uh, sap their momentum a little bit. But you've seen some of these strip calls, Xander. Like sometimes the video ref doesn't seem to get those right. This, like, well, there, the strip there, are, there is a little bit of grey in a yeah. strip, for example. So say your advantage that you're getting, even if you're right, mm. is to get a penalty and you earn 20 metres in the mm. first game, in the first minute of a game. Is that worth the risk of losing a captain's challenge? Well, I mean, I, I still think that there is, there is, there's a grey area, but um, if we're talking about 100% certainty, where it's like one of those ones no, where the players... No such thing with the video ref, we know but, that. <laughs> but, you know, you have seen those. I mean, we saw them in Origin where a player gets up and he's just sort of moving off the the tackled player, and he fumbles a ball, and he looks at the player who's just tackled him. He's like, man, he didn't get a hand on you. And, you know that 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 is cut and dry, and that happens. And you know you don't see those you know fail with video ref. I've seen it. That's the issue. I, <laughs> I definitely have seen yeah, that I, happen. I, I, yeah, I, I don't have as much faith in the video ref as you do. I think, and I, that might be going through my mind if I was a player. Mario, as a as a skipper of the of the Eagles, you may be the skipper next year because you know they haven't got a lot of depth. How would you be using the captain's challenge? Almost exactly the same way as what you said. If it's an, I, I think, if if the maybe there needs to be a, I hate the term leadership group, but you need to have three or four guys in the team who are spread out in the field that you can trust their judgment. Maybe do some tests at training. This guy, this guy, this guy. You you seem to judge what's what's dropped, what's this, what's that more often. So if you're nearby the plane, you say, we're not going to listen to bloody Adam Fanua Blake because he's got seven brain cells. But if, you know, Joel Thompson's nearby and we've decided he's smart, then we'll listen to his opinion on whether that should be challenged or not. He's probably too busy rolling down a hill blind, to be honest. But, I mean, I see what you're saying. We asked our listeners, when is the best time to use a captain's challenge? Is it for a howler to slow the clock down? Use it as late as possible or when you have momentum, 63% howlers. Now, Cameron Smith has written a book, lads. It's called The Storm Within. Now, I've only read a few passages so far, but I do know a couple of things. 
after doing my research. First is that there's actually a special pop-up version of the book where you can make and toggle a little Cameron Smith's arms and make him argue the toss over whether or not the bibliography is seriously injured. So that's incentive enough to run out there and buy this one, is I there, reckon. Is there a pop-up page where two different contracts pop up? Uh, possibly, mate. That could be in the, the hardback. I'm not sure. Uh, but secondly, there's an extract I want to read to you both and get your views on. It concerns the 2010 salary cap breach, and it goes like this. When people ask me who I'm most angry at for what happened, they generally think I'll say the CEO, Brian Waldron, but it's not. My anger is mainly directed at the NRL for the penalties they handed down and the way the whole matter was handled. And for that, I blame David Gallup. By punishing us before undertaking a thorough investigation, Gallup put the players in a position they should never have been in. It allowed the media to give the public the idea we had knowledge of what happened. We were hung out to dry by the boss of the game. Now, that passage follows a recent SMH report, guys, that suggests the ex-Storman chairman Rob Moody and former director Pete Maher are actually planning to lodge a submission with the current NRL administration over wanting the process and penalties back in 2010 to be re-examined, suggesting that the Eels and the Sharks were treated more fairly than they were. So the first question I have for you is how do we feel that Cameron Smith is suggesting the real anger here should be directed at the administration of the NRL and not the Melbourne Storm? Is that similar to the defence Jared Hayne has put forward in court that um, that Baldwin's vagina was just getting in the way of his teeth? Allegedly. Uh, possibly, mate. I'm not entirely sure if uh, Cameron Smith's enacted the, the Hain defence or not. I, I'd probably leave that out of it. I think it's pretty obvious that Cameron Smith was totally unaware of the two contract thing. What actually happened is he just had a pen in his hand and he walked around signing his signature in the air and if a contract happens to get in the way, it's its own fault. Yeah, I, I agree with Mario on this one. I think... Um... You know, it, it's it's hard to take it too seriously when you know you do for, for you to sign two contracts, you, you ought to know something is up. Um, you know, and him, it, he he was he was not a young man ten years ago. <laughs> you know, he was still a, he'd been around the block at that point. Um, so no, I, I mean this this is a bit trite, I, I reckon. Um, and I think that there is material differences between uh, the incompetence of the eels and sharks breaches versus the methodical and detailed. Uh, double contracting system that the storm undertook. You say methodical, but essentially they had uh, a, a fake room right next to the real room. Yeah, that's which that's, is that's methodical. Like well, they it's had not, two, mate, they put a fucking room in between them for but, fuck's sake. But they had two sets of books. I mean, Jesus, they did. But the guy stumbled into the fake books because it was so close to the real books. <laughs> Fair. Put so, them off site, you fuckwit. It's still anyway. a rugby league scandal, mate. <laughs> Classic rugby league. They only go, only go up by halves. That's what annoys me. If you're going to cheat, go the whole way. Do you think that his suspicion should have been aroused when uh, a lot of the players were getting extra boats and cars? That's the thing that always pops up. We talk about the second contract. Yeah, sure. It's possible you might need to sign an, an adjoining contract. You might be able to rationalise it. Not really, but a little bit. But when you go, hang, I don't I remember you. having these four or five yachts. It's not mentioned in the contract that I that I have a house in the Bahamas. And the whole Parramatta and Cronulla comparison is ridiculous. I mean, Parramatta, theirs was pretty systematic. It was just a really bad system. And to the best of my knowledge, which isn't great, Parramatta's numbers 
were significantly lower. They were small amounts in paper bags, effectively. They weren't $2 million over the salary cap and winning grand finals. Parramatta cheated their way to wooden spoons. Melbourne Storm cheated their way to two grand finals and into keeping a team together that then went on to dominate Origin for a long period of time. Had those players not been able to stay together, who knows if those results are different. In so many ways, they have fucked over rugby league and they should be shot into the sea like the rest of Victoria, as proven today by all this police and security guard brutality, just send the whole state to the sea and fuck them off. Xander, you think that's the ultimate punishment that Parramatta, for example, cheated the system. There was uh, some duplicitous uh, agreements going on at the executive level, and yet they didn't perform very well on the field. Do you think that's punishment enough? We cheated and we were still shit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Parramatta system if you can call it that, really did amount more to incompetence than anything else. I mean, there were people who didn't understand what were, like what basically the state of their books was. Mm. I mean, it was it, their, their, their attempt to rot the salary cap um, felt more haphazard and almost, um, you know, almost accidental. <laughs> like it was, it was a little bit like the, uh, the, the, the now famous Brisbane Broncos recruiting strategy of, mm. um, you know, basically hiring your local glassy to, to tell you which park footy players he thinks look pretty good in a Broncos jumper. I mean, that was the extent of their sophistication. Yeah. Uh, they, they, it's just, there's no comparison whatsoever. Looking at this passage and I haven't read the whole book, but why does he have no malice for the CEO who obviously orchestrated all of this. There was more than one person involved, but surely if you're going to be holding someone to account and impugning your reputation as Cameron Smith is suggesting this happened, that uh, the public perception is they were involved, why wouldn't he have some malice for that CEO? He's got that lovely house in the Bahamas. It's simple because by blaming the CEO, you're acknowledging that the club as a whole has some fault in it. And by doing that, there's therefore some small degree of fault on him. As far as he's concerned, he is 100% the victim. He's the good guy. The NRL are the bad guys. By putting blame on the club, that transfers blame onto him some small amount. And he doesn't want that. So he can only blame outside figures, not no one in any way connected to him. Well, David Gallup's certainly one person who's responded because this is something that Cameron Smith sort of levelled straight at David and he's come out and defended himself pretty strongly. He said, no, we did do a a fairly lengthy investigation. It went for months, uh, Mr Gallup said, and Cameron Smith obviously saying that, you know, they were blindsided and it got released to the media within, you know, days or hours of of knowing about the scandal. So uh, there's been no response from Cameron Smith since. But why, why the victim mentality... Xander, I think Mario's right there. and It's probably something that tarnishes Cameron's reputation. People talk about that a lot. Why do people hate him? Why is he such a polarising figure? Is it the fact that he has got the perennial victim mentality off and on the field? Well, yeah, I mean, he's still pissed off that he, uh, that, that Wayne Bennett never picked him for the Broncos and, <laughs> and he's held that against him ever since. So I think he's the kind of guy that doesn't let the, the, the small stuff pass. And that's probably what's made him such a great player is or 100% detail to every small thing. He's probably got a grudge against every single player that's not on his team, and he wants to find some way to have someone else murder them on his behalf because, you know, he doesn't. he's never first in on a tackle. He's always third, and he's always r- running in and going, oh, bad boy, and giving them a slap as they, as they fall to the ground. 
Do, do, are either of you uh, kind of getting the sense that when you know, the inevitable Cam Smith documentary does get made, probably by a company he started, there will be a lot of similarities between how uh, Jordan in The Last Dance talked about his back end of his career and there'll be a lot of... From then it was personal. <laughs> you well, know it's funny, I mean? I, I, you had me up there for a little bit, but I actually thought when you said it's going to be a documentary, I thought it was going to be more in the vein of Joseph Fritzl, The Dungeon Years. Well, that wraps up another show for this week. A big thank you to Mario and Xander for joining me on the panel and an even bigger thank you to you, the listeners, for sitting down with us and cracking a beer open for another week. Maybe even smoking some crack. Who knows? One thing I do love about Rugby League podcasting is getting to know the amazing community of NRL lovers out there. So this week, I want to give big shout-outs to Dean at the NRL Roast for another stellar year making the socials a blast. Andrew Ferguson for maintaining the Rugby League project, the most invaluable resource for any Rugby League head, and to my good mate, The Biggest Tiger, whose love and admiration for the great game of Rugby League is simply unparalleled. The men took out a membership for every club to support them during COVID, for fuck's sake. That's dedication. We'll be back next week, but until then, just do what Nudge from Hey Dad would do and cop unwarranted abuse for being a sexual deviant when it was really Mr. Kelly all along. See you next time.